0: Welcome back. This is Courtney, and you're listening to My Vagina Hurts, a podcast where we decided to take our raw, revealing, and sometimes outrageously spicy dinner chats, put mics in front of our faces, and hit record. Friend, boss, business owner, wife, and mom are just some of the roles we juggle. But in reality, we're just some stressed and sexy women here to give you an unfiltered perspective on the not-so-glamorous, but sometimes fabulous and downright exhausting things we deal with in today's world. Get ready to laugh, gasp, and maybe even shed a tear as we release new episodes each and every week. No BS, no pretending, just pure unapologetic realness from us to you. Hello and welcome back to My Vagina Hurts. I'm Courtney. I'm Devin. And I'm Kelly. We're here. Barely. <laughs> so I think it's actually really fitting that we're talking about this today because I know that we are all holding on by a thread <laughs> this particular week. Um, it's just, you know, some weeks are easier than others, right? And we have issues. Um I think that it's just a particularly tough season for everything that we've all got going on right now. Lots of changes, lots of transitions. So we're all in a place, right? (laughs) So, um, that kind of leads me to believe, uh, leads me to something that I texted in our group chat earlier this year. And it was kind of tongue tongue in cheek. It was that I had finally developed my winning mom combo of drugs. It was my (laughs) antidepressant and uh, two ashwagandhas from Costco in the morning and then half a THC gummy in the evening. That was a few months ago, so I've since refined it to include... To stress gummies, which are different from the ashwagandha pills, both from Costco, <laughs> on my way to pick the kids up from school in the evening. So I realized Costco that- vitamins for the <laughs> Costco vitamins for the win. Costco vitamins for the win. I realized that the, the stress gummy in the evening was really the missing piece because, and Devin and I recently chatted about this, that- That transition of like picking your kids up from school when they are just like hungry and tired, it's tough. And I realized that's when I was having most of my blow ups was at like the five to five thirty hour. So I added in the stress gummies. I'm a little bit more calm when I pick them up from school. And then I also now only really do the THC gummy if I'm having a hard time falling asleep or if the evening was really particularly stressful. So I'm finding my mix. (laughs) And if you haven't guessed, today we're talking specifically moms and drugs. Everything from the kind a doctor prescribes, herbal remedies from Costco, all the way up to the kind that are best started off as a microdose. So because we're all gainfully employed and I don't necessarily want anyone calling CPS, this will largely be a research-backed episode. So feel free to share what you feel and we'll talk about some of the things that we've learned. We're going to talk a little bit about history and then we'll end it off a little bit with kind of what's going on in the modern day. I recently borrowed and started a copy that Kelly had of a book called Women and Madness. This was a 1973 published research book, and it was recently updated with a new forward by the author Phyllis Chesler for The New Millennium. She redid it in 2005. So she updated some of the chapters and also wrote a new very, very lengthy and heady forward. So per Amazon, this definitive book was the first to address critical questions about women and mental health. It combines patient interviews with an analysis of women's roles in history, society, and myth. The author concludes that there is a terrible double standard when it comes to women's psychology. So in the new edition, she addresses many of the most relevant and new issues to women in mental health, including eating disorders, social acceptance around antidepressants, addictions, sexuality, postpartum diseases, and more. So this got me to thinking, what do we know about the history of mothers and drug use specifically to ease the effects of parenting? How are we different nowadays, the same, and what's the right choice, if any? And the hint is there never really is. So I'm going to start off with that question. What do each of you know about the history of mothers, either in America or even before that? using legal or illicit drugs to cope with their role specifically as a mother. Kelly, I'll throw to you first.
1: Yeah, so I'm going to take us way back to start with where the, I think all this like mental health, being a woman with some emotional mental disorder, quote unquote, started, um, and where we felt the need to start with drugs in the first place. So there is a term called, female hysteria, which goes back way to ancient Egypt. And it was basically a diagnosis by men for a woman who basically did anything that wasn't viewed as acceptable behavior and therefore needed treatment. So there's this concept of called the wandering womb. And that's where the word hysteria comes from, is from the womb. And it's the concept of a pathological wonder. Womb was later viewed as the source of the term hysteria. And it's the, the idea that when your body parts your womb, your uterus is moving, it's putting pressure on other parts of and other organs of your body and therefore causing you issues. So common uh, symptoms were described as a swollen abdomen, chest pain, excessive emotion, increased sex drive, decreased sex drive, increased appetite. Does all of this sound like, you know, having your period,
0: being a woman right. with a cycle. Like so or anything if we- <laughs> or literally any day, yes. any of these things right? might be happening. To exactly. Me. I mean you basically, know what's really if- funny about this is I have heard the, you know, olden day term hysteria for many, many years, probably since high school. And I never knew what it meant. I always yeah. assumed it was a woman who was like a little crazy. Like I, I didn't mm-hmm. know. And it makes sense that I didn't know because no one would have been able to explain this vague, right? you know, option of symptoms.
1: Yeah. Oh, well the, it gets worse. So I mean, to sum it up, basically the presence of a uterus was enough of a symptom to make this diagnosis. And now what makes this bullshit is, This is based upon the patriarchal definition of what is normal. So it's what is normal to a man, right? Like what is a man's body, you know, feeling, acting, doing? So the fact that a woman had different symptoms, therefore was labeled as something completely asinine and out of control. So through the years, it has had different types of treatments. So a pelvic massage was one of them. Forcing women to orgasm to release ex- excess fluid. Oh my gosh! Leeches on oh the abdomen God. to reduce oh blood God. in the womb. <sighs> Marriage was the treatment. <laughs> oh,
0: that's gonna fix uh, everything. Yeah.
1: So, um, Sigmund Freud. <laughs> who, do. You know, it. Super respected. Sigmund Freud's input was this whole hysteria phenomenon that he believed that the cause of it was the woman's loss of her metaphoric penis only to be cured by marrying a man and fulfilling her loss. So
0: that's, that's the patriarchy oh right gosh. there. No, no. <laughs> Women do not have penis envy. We've established right. that.
1: Yes. Yeah, so other other things were, you know, sex if you've ever heard somebody say like, oh, she needs to have more sex that'll fix her um in ancient Greece. Oh my gosh, became, I heard
0: someone just say that. Ugh.
1: Like recently. Not to me, yeah. obviously, but <laughs> It was becoming else? increasingly, um, yeah, in ancient Greece, it was becoming increasingly common to write off women, women as mad if they hadn't orgasmed enough. Um, you know, worst case, they were thrown in an insane asylum, had a hysterectomy. There was scent therapy in which good smells were placed under a woman's genitals and bad odors at the nose. And then it was assumed if you sneezed, oh, your uterus would go back into place and everything would be quote unquote fixed. Um, Master, you know what? I
2: actually, I, I actually believe there's probably some doctors per- still giving some form of this advice to the women that have prolapse bladders or oh, yeah. issues after birth. Mm-hmm. That they're just like, oh, if you just do this exercise and squeeze when you sneeze, it'll all work That's out. Right like yes. it'll all you know yes. well back. and i think this is i think this is further down
0: in my notes from my research on this topic that the term or maybe this was in your research kelly the term hysteria as a diagnosis was only taken out of medical terminology in the 80s yep, which means right. plenty of doctors who are still practicing yes were taught under the term hysteria with all of the symptoms. So of course, they would still be practicing that they just don't call it that anymore. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, this whole thing illustrates
1: to me how far back this goes. And it brings up the question of how much are we as a society still influenced by the remnants of this mindset to this day? And then how are we modern women subconsciously viewing our own historic like hysteric moments as just that like out of control losing grip not able to manage and how often are we reaching for that substance or reaching for that drug to put us back into a mindset that makes it feel like we can handle all of these things because we're worried about not being able to handle all these things because of the perception that everybody has of us why can't we mm-hmm. just go about it like have a meltdown while we're grocery shopping why can't we cry in front of 25 people at work. It's because we'll be labeled hysteric. We'll be labeled like we have a problem. So we not only take these drugs because we want to feel better, but because we're you know trying to mask off or escape or numb out from the judgments that come with it. That is very much influenced by thousands of years of history. So it's not all of our own fault right. here. <laughs> the societies we've
0: been set up to. It's just fail. so strange to me that there have obviously always been male and female. So at, I, I'm, I'm sure some like historian will tell me, but why, if there are an equal number of men and women on this planet, why are women like, w- like where did we go wrong? Where did we give up our power? Because we apparently did it right off the bat. <laughs> like well, Can you imagine two. back in the, like back in like, let's
1: even just go to the 1800s. A bunch of men, psychologists, psychiatrists sitting around, which you know were pretty much 100 percent men at that time, trying to figure out what was wrong with women. Like, oh my god, she's complaining about her stomach hurting. Like their yeah. cure back then was like to do what they called the. Rapid I don't cure. even think
2: it was that. Like, I would bet you it was the first scorned, angry, lonely man. That was like, oh, she won't marry me and have my baby. She's crazy. And it spirals into, I mean, we'll just – you know, rush to today's all the articles about all oh, the lonely men are everywhere. Like it's, it's all women's fault. You know, men they're tell. just, they yeah. hate men. It's yeah, like it's the same. If you blame. look at it, yeah. it's almost identical. Just new words. Like it's absolutely it ridiculous. Is. It is, and it is
0: women being scapegoated and blamed for men's insecurities. Yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I started understanding like the history of like medical malpractice and uh, especially against women when I became an adult and I had more than one friend bring up horror stories about healthcare and like all the things that we were sort of going through and and what questions we were asked. And And this was all even pre-kid, pre-marriage, and then once you go down that rabbit hole, you can't. Unsee what you've already seen and then, you know, learn those things. And I will say we've covered a lot about the history of certain things, but the actual use of prescriptions was a huge impact to women. Um, you know, things like barbiturates, Percocets, you know, Xanax, they always ended up showing up in pop culture, even from the twenties. And I was an old soul watching a lot of old TV shows growing up. Um, so I was reading an article on Vice that really says like the history of drug abuse in women and and where it all started. And in 1903, a new addictive class of ph- pharmacolo- pharmacological agents, pharmacy uh, drug things called barbiturates was on a rise. Um, they were used as sedatives meant to treat nervousness or anxiety, um, commonly referred to as like a sleeping pill or a rest cure. And like, that was, that'll cure all ailments for women. Um, and this was, you know, including people like Virginia Woolf, um, and Charlotte Perkins, that era's like physicians, And their opiate-laced predecessors, those pills became highly addictive. And this just led to a way, way increase in female addicts all throughout the 1900s. And in that article, the author says, if you have a group of people whose life choices you're limiting, they're going to end up less happy on average. So like this fixes those types of things. And pop culture just decided to exploit that whole theory. And when you start to uncover like just how much exposure we got throughout our history, throughout the history of the 20s, 30s, all the way through the 70s, um, everything, you know, in shows like I Love Lucy, Family Matters, um, Saved by the Bell, Roseanne, um, Mad Men, they were all all covering this topic in some way, but all as an undertone, not as like the overt storyline. And you saw like women taking a pillbox out of their purse and offering it to a friend in a moment um, when they found out their husband was cheating or the husband saying something like, why don't you go take a Percocet and lie down? Um, and if you combine that with the advertisements, of pharmaceut- pharmaceuticals at that same time where almost a hundred percent of the ads were a sad woman on a bed alone in a bedroom, dark blue, you know, color overlay, sad music. Are you feeling down, depressed? Da, 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 da. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. cut to the right into the sun. S- and then a panning over outside, and she's walking with uh, usually her husband or a kid, big smile on her mm-hmm. face. And then it, you know, insert pharma ad. Yeah, um, right. The commercials there. are
0: even like that
1: now. Oh, oh it's so bad. And, and they, I was it, looking when the, in the research I was doing. There was print ads from back in the eighteen hundreds that were doing the same thing.
2: So it's
1: oh yeah, yeah it's
2: crazy. it. They needed pharmaceuticals needed to come in so that. In their head, this would stop the addiction. This would be more prescription. And this was going to be a medical route because, lo and behold, in 1945, obviously, something hit its breaking point. Scare stories about women abandoning their duties or deviating from social norms like motherhood (laughs) played heavily in the press. And if you guys um, have a chance to look, there's this 1945 illustration in American Druggist Magazine, and it portrays a female addict turning to prostitution and um, leaving her family and her kids. Eight years later, the FDA creates this whole subcommittee on juvenile delinquency, you know, because of barbiturates, because of how addictive it is, and makes a statement saying women no longer take interest in the home or children get dirty and slovenly, steal money no. and sell furniture Uh-oh. to get yeah. the drugs. Don't, don't, wonder. Sell, don't sell the furniture. To, uh- <laughs> And that is where we are today, and why everybody's talking about you know holistic options or you know micro dosing because we have it's to the find the media who ways. made a stigma around yes. taking wow. women drugs. cannot oh take that, but you know Wolf of Wall Street, oh, you know nobody. finance bros can rip all the drugs they want because you know they're taking they have care work of they
0: have work all those do. things they have yeah. important work. Oh, my gosh. Yeah,
2: that's, jeez. I'm going to have to check out that. uh... It's a really ridiculous image. I'm not going to lie. It's so bad. I can't imagine. It's so so dumb. So let's jump into some fast facts
0: that some we've covered on America's history with women and diagnoses. So a female patient is twice as likely as her male counterpart to leave with a diagnosis of depression. We've also learned through testing, because as many of us know, many drugs to this day are only tested on men and not on women. And what we've learned about testing drugs on women is that they actually work better for female users and you can take that for better or for worse. Opioids are more pain relieving. Antidepressants are more potent. Anti-anxiety medications are more powerful, but they all, that also means they can cause more side effects. Women do experience depression and anxiety at higher rates than men, but I also read that the percentage that they are diagnosed and prescribed medication is astronomically higher than just the higher rate that they experience the depression and anxiety. Back in the day, drugs like morphine, laudanum, they treated the distinctly female conditions of pregnancy, childbirth, menstrual pain. I do not know why these are conditions. These are <laughs> just things that happen. Just I discuss. remember being so frustrated learning that when you go to the hospital to have a baby, that they have to diagnose you as pregnant. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, I didn't, I didn't know I was ill. Like, I just thought I came to have a baby. And during the time in American history that spanned prohibition, a lot of drugs were used by women because they had the added benefit socially of not being alcohol. So, so many American women crusaded against alcohol and participated in prohibition that they didn't want to besmirch their reputation by drinking. So obviously they turned to drugs and painkillers. So then we know how and we've we've talked about in other episodes that in World War II, so many women were able to go into the workforce, but then when their husbands, brothers, fathers returned home from World War II, they had to go back into domesticated life. And that really spawned the rise of Mother's Little Helper, like Valium. And that was the first kind of widespread time in the 60s that we saw housewives able to emotionally cope with the mundane tasks of their everyday lives. In the 1960s, women were being prescribed Valium twice as much as men. Actually, I want to stop and dive a little bit into that. Just think about the concept that, you know, in the 60s, when many middle, upper middle class women were home, not working, taking care of children, taking care of household, how miserable The vast majority of them were, and the fact that they had to self-medicate just to make it through the day,
2: and their husbands probably encouraged it. Oh yeah, so my guess is they had a quiet and
1: happy. Yes,
2: they wanted. They didn't want to deal with the "I want your help" or "You're never home" or Mm -hmm. "What are you doing." conversations they would just go go talk to a doctor about it why don't you go tell them that you need something for that so like it was a cycle of just refusing to acknowledge the work in general that it takes to just be home managing a family a house whatever it might be just the sheer empathy was never given and then that's passed down.
1: And it was way less acceptable to be vocal about it like mm-hmm. to other women to in the public. Yeah, I think to, right. women, women likely had their small groups of friends that they would mm-hmm. bitch about shit just like we do, but no by no means in like a public way would they want to ever look weak and that they yeah. didn't have their shit together. So there's
0: the
2: pressure was coming. Yeah, they were getting beaten yeah. at home. Right. Like yeah. well, and wants what's to deal even with worse that. about
0: even if they had their small group None of them could provide each other with any actionable solutions because For it's not sure. like right. we, you know, if if we're all in the sixties, it's not like we're sitting around saying, "Well, oh, well, you should go back to work, or you should." Right. You didn't have the choice; you couldn't. Yeah. So, right, and when yeah, you got, you got a divorce, you and- were alone. Exactly, you were like alone, the
2: spinster alone. alone. Yes. So, you really had to opt into that. Yeah,
0: yeah. Your your livelihood and your well being, and the well being of your children who regardless of how difficult your life is, you care so deeply about, when all of that rides on your servitude and your silence, you have no choice. You have no choice but to find something to help you get along. So that leads us to today. We have antidepressants, anti-anxiety medication, um, these are called SSRIs, which are something serotonin reuptake inhibitors. I don't know the first S. But anyway, the statistic out is that antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications are used by at least 25% of American women between ages 40 and 50. And the national average is only 10%. So that's more than double in just a what, 10-year subset of half of a wow. population. <laughs> that's wow. that's a lot. So regardless of how, and, and we'll talk a little bit about kind of stigma behind it as we get into our personal experiences, because I definitely want to hear what everyone's kind of current experiences are with speaking to other moms about opinions and stigma or not stigma around taking medication for depression and anxiety. So my first question is, have you ever been diagnosed with a mood disorder? What was the context? Did you ever take anything for it, whether that was doctor prescribed or personal? And then finally, is talk therapy alone enough?
1: So I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression. I went into my treatment with a therapist not wanting to take anything. I didn't want to be prescribed anything. And then the doctor reinforced that by saying you're high functioning and high functioning enough that you probably don't need to take anything for it. So in that moment it was validating to hear that. I don't know if that was actually true or if I should have been diagnosed something at that or, uh, prescribed something at that point. But talk therapy part of you know, to answer that part of the question was helpful in those moments, but it wasn't enough because I did self-prescribe with alcohol at times. I did. Um, and uh, all of that, you know, the journey through all of that led me to yoga. So yoga has been my like form of therapy that does help me cope without having to like take a medication or put something yeah. in my body for it.
0: And that's in addition to talk therapy too. So really that is two forms, you know, it's like you have mm-hmm. yoga and then you still have talk therapy, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I um so I've never been diagnosed with a mood disorder. I've had a lot of conversations with doctors in my teens that would equate just about any physical ailment I had to anxiety or stress. They'd be like, are you stressed? Are you um anxious about this or and I'd just get irritated like I it was just annoying to me. And when I would get in, you know, these big fights with my dad or um, where I was just angry and upset, like that combo plus being stubborn. There would be this go. Why don't you just take a Xanax and calm down or like, let's all relax. But I had just a different lens into prescriptions, into medication. You know, my dad would take things for everything, any ailment, any. All those things, but he was hyper against any illegal drugs at all like I mean hard and fast rule, right, so there was no like smoking pot to calm down type of conversation, but there were like drugs upon drugs upon drugs of all the things, so I had a a and still have a hard time taking any form of a drug for anything. I am always looking for like some way to better understand what the problem is, to know what my options are before I ever take anything specifically. Um, and I definitely didn't take it as a kid when, you know, it was offered when I was angry because out of spite, I was like, you're not, absolutely not. You're going to get my full rage and you'll <laughs> just have to deal. Um it was just never a thing for me. So now I know a little bit more. I still do not take anything consistently outside of magnesium and, you know, different vitamins. But most of my stuff is not anti-anxiety. It's more like dopamine inducing or like boost, like focus boosting. Like I am not one, I run hot on and high, like I'm just like up all the time, there's a whole different problem (laughs) to deal with. Um, So I'm more of like, I think it's, what was it called? Theonate, something theonate, and then magnesium at night to calm me down. Oh, nice. So do you feel like, this is the
0: kind of the last part of the question, do you feel like talk therapy alone can be enough?
2: No, I think talk therapy alone is invaluable in and of itself for a multitude of reasons. I don't necessarily think if you are truly struggling with any medical, especially brain issue, talk therapy will not do it. You can't manifest your way out of it. You can't talk your way out of it. Nobody can convince you to do it because it's a true chemical imbalance that that's it. So to me, it is the usually the first step into getting what you actually need from a diagnosis. And you're not, I do not believe you can get it from like your primary care physician. I think it has, you have to start talk therapy with somebody over time. And you start to uncover all of the things mm-hmm. that you've been burying. Yeah.
0: So my, I have a very specific story, which is, kind of around um postpartum depression i experienced postpartum depression with all three of my children um definitely postpartum depression and rage um i have dealt with rage my entire life and my dear 3 year old is following closely in my footsteps so that's been really fun but um the so with with my first i attended talk therapy alone. And it wasn't enough. It was like, great when I was there, but I was unable to regulate enough to even put the teachings into practice. And that's when I realized there was something else wrong. Because talk therapy is great because it does teach you tools and coping mechanisms But if you are unable to employ them when needed, it's not working. So I realized that something needed to happen to be able to allow my brain to take that beat to then employ whatever tool I had learned. And after my second child was born, I spoke to my doctor about it. And she said, you know, I don't think it's postpartum depression because you know, your period's already come back. It's, it's been a few months. And what I now know about postpartum depression is it's, it doesn't have to happen the day the baby is born. I was only six months postpartum. It's not like my kid was 11 and I was like, I'm upset. <laughs> like the baby was still just born. And so I was kind of in retrospect, I'm a little frustrated about that because I think of all the other women whose postpartum issues are are kind of brushed off because of that. I was prescribed an antidepressant. I ended up getting pregnant super quickly after my second and I chose to go off the antidepressant. I didn't even ask the doctor what I should or shouldn't do. I just was like, oh, I'm pregnant again. Let me go off of it. And then I decided as soon as my third was born, I got right back on the antidepressant and she'll... B2 very shortly, and I'm still on it, and everything is um, not great, but so, so much better than what it was.
1: Well, good for you, Courtney, for having the awareness within yourself during that first time where you said, you know, this is, something else is wrong here. Wrong. Because that's, that's a really difficult place to get to unless you have the strength within to find that, and I just feel so bad for the women in this world who don't ever have, have that level of reflection because they are so deep in the thick of it. It takes them years of sitting in that to have someone hopefully say to them, oh, you might have something else going on. They'll just keep going to talk therapy and keep going to you know, yoga. Well, <laughs> like if you think about heart, it, that's the, same. The, hardest, mm-hmm.
2: the hardest part for me has been... Depression is a spectrum. So it doesn't look like the commercials all the time. It doesn't look like the stories you've heard or anything like that. And even on the doctor forms after you have a baby, they only ask like three questions for the mother. And it's, do you want to harm yourself? Do you want to harm the baby? And how are you feeling on a scale of one to 10? Like that, that's it. Right. And so when. I am so logical. When I look at those questions, I never felt those things that would give the the doctor a red flag. But when she'd go like, "Well, how's everything going?" and I'm like, flat, right, and neutral, and I'm just functioning. I'm right, because like robotic- you have no emotion. You're like, I can't. Yeah, and I'm just tired, and I'm like, I don't know. I'm fine, I guess. Like, I'm I'm making it work because that's what I'm supposed to do, right? Like everyone around me was like, well, yeah, that's normal. Or this is, you know, everyone has went through that or, and you just don't know. And nobody until just recently started explaining that almost every one of these types of chemical imbalances are a spectrum. I just don't know how we change that conversation outside of just you know, women talking about it, if even doctors don't even start there. It wasn't with my first,
0: probably with my second, because it was also COVID. I got that form and was like, oh, I feel all these things, but I am also smart enough and terrified enough to know that if I Mm -hmm. fill this out truthfully, they will take my baby away and lock me up. So I'm going to lie and say that everything's okay. Yeah. 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 I think
1: that is definitely more what people feel. When we get to that point.
2: I will say I've had, yeah, I've had a lot of conversations with women now in our 30s and early 40s, and everyone's sort of talking about this like something's not right. I feel you know off. I'm I'm really pushing to better understand all my hormones. Da 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 da, and. When I say something like, well, have you talked to somebody about going on an antidepressant? Have you talked to somebody about, you know, microdosing or do you take any of those um, little pieces of chocolate or gummies? Because all of my friends have offered me like those, the ones without the THC. I think Courtney, gave those to me as a gift. And you can see this level of calm hit their body like, oh, it's Okay to talk about it, like they are riding behind it going, I don't think I can tell her, you know, I'm on an, I want to go on an antidepressant. What if she doesn't, what if she thinks I'm crazy or what if she thinks I'm this? It's a very, um, it's a sad feeling to watch that.
0: It is. It is. I've been Um, at, you know, at, at mom hangouts with maybe Some mom's talking about, you know, how terrible it is that everyone's over-medicating. And then later, like, another mom will whisper, like, oh, I'm on antidepressants. And it's like, geez, like, you're making someone feel so bad because of your perceived opinion. And so it's like, who is – but it's always the smallest population is the loudest, right? So it's always, like, that one woman who, for whatever reason, was able to not take anything – Is going to say how terrible, you know, oh my goodness, everyone's so weak, blah, 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 blah. And then everyone else is feeling, you know, crappy.
2: Debatable. I bet (laughs) if you go to that woman and snoop in their medicine cabinet, I'm gonna bet you that you find a lot more than (laughs) they'll let on. Usually the loudest is masking. Hiding the most. That's true. Um, So, but that's hard in the moment to not take all those comments personally when we were all sort of beaten with this information and probably still experience that weird conversation with our doctors or it's in- incredibly difficult to find any functional medicine doctor willing to talk about hormones and mm-hmm. get the right hormone levels, insurance doesn't want to talk about yeah. it or cover it. Yeah. You know, it. you have to jump through hoops to just want to better understand your female hormones, because they refuse to include us in any studies. There's no data because you didn't want to look no. at it. No. I'm asking to look at it so that we can have a better yeah. conversation and you can't find it. No. But when you do find those doctors in my area, there's like five hormone doctors that have popped up, six month waiting list. Oh, That's sure. how many women are trying to get in.
0: Well, because everyone wants answers, right? We all just want answers. We want to know Is it my brain? Is it my body? What is it? I want to try to do better. I want to try to help this. And I feel like it's noble that at least we're trying. So I don't want to end this on the saddest note of life. (laughs) So we're going to kind of rewind a little bit back to our days of freedom before children. So so I'm going to go out on a limb and say that as a woman who doesn't have children, as a non-mother, maybe speaking from past, I feel that drugs are more frequently used as mood boosters surrounding a party or a social event. So how have you kind of seen, whether it's in your personal life or in your social circle, that being a mother shifts what the use of drugs are for?
1: Yeah. So my um, (laughs) my mom would drink
0: a glass of wine every night and she called it
1: her medicine. And I think that that is. And she said that her mom did the same thing. And so it's like this, you don't drink to uh, go up. (laughs) You drink to go down
0: um, and to come down, like softens the intensity of your life, especially in the evening. It's not like, oh, I'm going out with some girlfriends. I want to have a glass of wine to like be happy or whatever. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's the like drinking at home. I think, you know, we still use it as a mood shifter. Like when we want to loosen up when we're recording or whatever, we are going out for a night and we want to have fun conversation. Um, but I think it's used to cope more than it is to enhance fun. Like it used to, right. I never did any like hard drugs, just like weed and stuff like that. Now, all of those types of things, cannabis, melatonin, mushrooms are all used to sleep (laughs) to get better quality
0: sleep and, um, to a, yeah, to a degree like escape. So that leads me to my next question. What do you know about and what are your thoughts on microdosing illicit drugs? So this is definitely something that I feel like is gaining in popularity and isn't just like a hippie thing anymore, more Mm. and more, not just mothers, but people of all ages are, um microdosing LSD, microdosing mushrooms. So I'd love to hear any thoughts on that. I don't even know what that means. I don't know where you get LSD or what a microdose consists of. So yes. I would love so to I hear anyone's psychologists,
2: thoughts. Psychologists so. can do those types of of things with you. I am all for especially a controlled environment of that. Um, I think there's huge benefits to LSD in those forms when you're working through trauma or you're trying to sort of get through a PTSD situation. I think that's all been proven out. Same with um, mushrooms. I don't think I could even consider doing those things in a non-controlled environment until Lucy was so much older. I just wouldn't be able because it would be my husband that I'd need to have there and we both can't do it like like we just can't
1: I have mushrooms mushroom chocolates they're not the psychedelic mushrooms um so I can't what's uh, the difference
0: what's like a regular mushroom <laughs> <laughs> I, I what does that I even know, do in my backyard <laughs> the psychedelic like mushrooms.
1: tomorrow <laughs> the the so the regular mushrooms have um some of them are like the reiki mushroom. I'd have to look it up, but there's ones that just like with cannabis, they make you go up or they make you go down. And it's a very subtle. It like the one that makes you go up is like drink with one chocolate is like drinking a cup of coffee. Um, the ones that make you go down make you sleep really well, especially if you hit with another, uh, with a one like melatonin gummy, you have great dreams and you sleep like a baby. Um, then, but the psychedelic mushrooms, they give, they're give they the ones that give you like the high, like the mm-hmm. hallucination high. I have never done them. Um, my sister was um, struggling with some depression things early this year and she was microdosing and it's literally taking a mushroom. She would, you know, not just microdose, she would eat a whole mushroom and then we would go for a walk in the woods and she would have, a, or even go to Target and she would have this amazing like experience.
0: And, I don't think I. Um, I, I me and Devin cannot I can't. go to Target on I anything can't. because <laughs> no, we all spend a million no. dollars. <laughs> but to watch, buy <laughs> everything.
1: But to watch girl, her that, experience it though was like, goddamn! Like if if I wasn't driving, I would love to be where she's at right now. <laughs> like so, it, and she loves it. She says it works. So I know that um, it is becoming much more popular. Um, I've even seen the psychedelic mushrooms starting to get some. Legal restrictions put around them so that you can microdose safely. um, You know, with people who are telling you how much you can do because you can take too much of all that stuff. I'm always a. a, I prefer drugs that are, um, or like those types of substances that are more natural based. Um, Not that's just my personal preference for what I put in my body, but um,
0: like so, LSD. I wouldn't even want to touch myself, but. God damn, it works for you. And it's, yeah. 120%. but it's all, it. and, and this is a conversation for another day, but we've all heard the part of the conversation, which is everyone's so fine with drinking and that yes. is more dangerous and worse for you than so many of these other things. Yes. So interesting. My,
1: um, I've been talking to me and my sibling talking to my mom about, um, she has trouble sleeping. have been trying to get her to do, um, cannabis gummies. For years, years and years and years. It's been legal in Michigan for a long time. and mean, the recreation is legal. Um, in Maryland, it just became legal on the 1st of July 1st of this year. And that day, for, night, she did her first cannabis study and slept so well. I was like, so you had to wait until oh, it was deemed legal <laughs> to do it. Yes,
0: yeah,
2: she but wouldn't it do it till it was legal. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Oh, good for her! That I mean, I will nice. say the younger generation that's they're just not drinking in the same volumes. Millennials are carrying the booze. Very true, for sure. But the there is <laughs> as this Courtney huge, throws back her high noon. <laughs> <laughs> There's this huge um, like conversation around micro dosing. Mushrooms as a product. And I see it all over Instagram and TikTok where they're selling like, take this before you go out and you don't have to drink. It'll take the social anxiety away. It'll, you know, do, you know, this, that and the other. And I am all for anything that is, you know, especially backed by science and tested and, you know, you know, passes whatever it needs to pass so that it's safe because alcohol is not. The escape route you want. Neither is any excess of any drug. It doesn't matter. Um, and the only way you're going to know what the right, like Courtney said at the beginning, the right combo is, is if you understand what's available and how they work with each other, with you, and you're actually talking about it. Yeah. Um, I am hopeful that like the conversations expand so that when we're talking to kids about it and our kids about it, it becomes less uh, taboo and shame ridden yes. and more open because that's the only way I think we would have all been helped earlier is if yes. it was more of a conversation at a younger age, mm-hmm. especially right at the puberty stage. Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: And not just about, oh my gosh, you're going to kill yourself and die. Right. And yes. nothing else, you know, no other conversation yes. when clearly nobody was having that conversation about alcohol.
2: <laughs> right. Mm-hmm.
0: So, we have uh, tons of references in the show notes. So check all these links out. Lots of interesting reading. Definitely um, click on some of these links and read these articles. And we're ending our episodes this season with our piece of advice, wisdom, or encouragement. So I would like to ask each of you, you know, what
2: is your piece of encouragement, wisdom, or advice for our listeners? In this type of conversation, in the conversation around drugs or alcohol or how you are feeling, you need to stay true to yourself. No matter who the conversation is with, your friends should not be pushing and forcing or making you feel a type of way about any of your options. They should just be sharing their stories. They should be sharing options for you or resources. Um be confident in your however you're feeling, if you're feeling sad, mad, whatever that is, um always and teach that to others as well cuz this could go awry if you are surrounded by folks that are trying to influence you in, in and
1: <laughs> you or just
2: totally brought back our
1: childhood. Just say no to drugs. <laughs> I know, and don't be afraid. True by care millennial fashion. fashion. I uh, love it, though. I love that
2: no. that is carried through. <laughs> yeah, it really was yeah. hammered home. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. My advice would be to don't be afraid to experiment with the things that you like. If you see something that says this could help you, or somebody does give you a, a reference, like don't be afraid to try it because you don't think you need to do this all by yourself that there are things out there. There are there's no shame in trying to in taking a substance or even if it turns into not something that you're ingesting, if it's if it's yoga, if it's screen therapy, if it's going to a rage room, like do things for yourself that allow you to kind of release that or go into that escapism or process what you need to process. Um, because it's not just you, it's the patriarchy at work, which we talked about from the very beginning of this episode. Um, yeah, we're, we're all in this together.
0: And don't be ashamed of trying to, to make it a little easier for yourself. We're always so on theme. So I'll round it out with um, be willing to share your story because you never know who is feeling uncomfortable or nervous. And if you aren't willing to say, you know what, I spoke up, I did this, I tried that, this worked, this didn't, you never know how that's going to help somebody. As mothers, it is so crucially important that we share all of our struggles and our triumphs because so much of it is kept to ourselves and we feel... Nervous or I don't know. I don't, I'm still in it. I'm not sure how I got through it. But if you just share one small thing with someone, it can make a mother feel comfortable, confident, or at least willing to speak up and try something to improve her mental health. Yay. Well, this was a super fun conversation. This was really fun, you guys. I hope everyone took some cool tidbits away and we will see you next week, right? Yep. Next week. All right. Bye guys.
1: Bye.
0: Thanks for joining us for another episode of my vagina hurts. Remember to hit that subscribe button. So you never miss out on our next candid conversation. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at MVH. The pod got a story you want us to share or a topic you want us to tackle slide into our DMs, or submit your anonymous vagina scary story at myvaginahurts.com. Thanks for being a part of the MVH world, and until next time, stay stressed and sexy.